Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be having a chat about Fritz Haber, a German scientist who is perhaps one of the most important, impactful, and overlooked scientists of the 20th century. We've all heard of Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, Alexander Fleming, all of these very famous figures from the last 100 years or so of science. But have you heard of Fritz Haber? My guess would be, no, you probably have not. But the reason the world is the way it is today, with 8 billion inhabitants kept alive and well for the most part, with three square meals in front of them a day, the reason that this is the case is because of this man and his scientific legacy. Well, part of it, at least. I I mean, he also spent a decent chunk of his career investigating exciting new ways to kill people, not just feed them, but we we will get to that. Harbour was responsible for the development of the Harbour process, later known as the Harbour-Bosch process. And the Harbour-Bosch process was a massive breakthrough in scientific history. It is a process by which, are you ready for this? I'll tell you what's very exciting. It is a process by which atmospheric nitrogen can be turned into ammonia on an industrial scale. So, yeah, I mean, if you're not blown away by that, I mean, you're probably thinking, okay, boring. I mean, who cares about that? Well, you do. You should, anyway, because as boring as this sounds, there is a very good chance that the meals you've eaten recently and throughout most of your life were only possible due to the Harbour-Bosch process. Ammonia, as you might know, is a fertiliser. It's one of the things that means that we can today continue to produce enough food to, to feed 8 billion people around the world. Without the Harbour-Bosch process, we wouldn't be able to grow enough food to feed everyone who lives on Earth, and there may have been a massive famine as natural sources of ammonia began to grow scarce in the early 20th century around the time the Harbour-Bosch process was, was developed. So for that, at least, the world owes Fritz Harbour a huge debt of thanks. But, as I say... Not so much for his contributions to the world of science after that, because uh, with, with the outbreak of the First World War, Harbour enthusiastically poured his efforts into developing deadly gases that were deployed on the battlefields, killing thousands upon thousands in horrific circumstances. And Harbour was completely unrepentant about his role in this, uh, I mean, as, as we'll talk about. And this really undid a lot of his legacy as a result. So a lot to talk about today, as ever. And before we get stuck in, I want to, th- I want to thank alert listeners Eric Whedon and Lydia for suggesting Harbour as a topic. Very interesting to learn more about this bloke. So thanks so much, Eric and Lydia, for, for getting in touch with the suggestion. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it here. Let's get stuck in and have a chat about Fritz Harbour, learn about what he did and also what he shouldn't have done. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 9th of December. 1868, when Fritz Haber was born in Breslau, which back then was part of the Kingdom of Prussia, which would become the German Empire in 1871, just a couple of years years later. But these days, Breslau, as you may know, is actually part of Poland. Anyway, he was born into a wealthy Jewish merchant family. His mum and his dad were cousins, uh, actual, factual, like, first cousins, not even even royalty or anything, and they were cousins getting married. I mean, this is just a full-on arrested development situation here. 
Uh, but very sadly, his mum, Paula, died just a few weeks after Harper was born, and this led him to have something of a difficult relationship with his dad, Siegfried. Uh, Siegfried remarried when Harbour was six. He had three daughters with his new wife, Hedwig. Uh, and Siegfried liked his daughters a lot more than he liked his son. Uh, maybe he resented Harbour for the death of Paula. I don't know. But I do know that the two blokes never got on, even when, I mean, not just when Fritz was a kid, also when he was an adult. Um, and and Harbour ended up being much closer, to, closer with his stepmother and, and his sisters than, than he did with his dad. Anyway, Harbour went off to school uh, as a young boy, and he did pretty well. He spent much of his education at a school that was equally divided. The students were equally divided between Christians and Jewish kids, uh, which is quite a forward-thinking institution for the late 19th century. Uh, And in 1886, he finished high school and enrolled in a chemistry course at what is today's Humboldt University in Berlin. Uh, The Humboldt University has had some extremely famous names attached to it. Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Max Planck, Otto von Bismarck, the Brothers Grimm, and a bloke called Albert Einstein. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, despite having all these famous names attached to it, he can't really also have... It it doesn't really count Harbour amongst its luminaries because he spent one very lacklustre semester there uh, and then moved on to other universities. Uh, He studied under Robert Bunsen, uh, who developed the Bunsen burner at Heidelberg University. Uh, Then he went back to Berlin and attended the Technical College of Charlottenburg, which is today known as the Technische Universität. Um, And the Technische Universität also has some very famous names uh, associated with it, not just Harbour, but Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, and uh, someone who later on would be very closely linked to Harbour, we'll talk about him, Karl Bosch. Anyway, Harbour studied at the uh, at the Technische Universität. Uh, his studies were interrupted in 1889 by a year of volunteer military service. But then in 1891, he graduated with a doctorate in chemistry. And what did he do with it, you might wonder? He moved back home to Breslau and worked for his dad, who had a company that sold paints and dyes. And uh, the, the, the knowledge that Harbour had accumulated when it came to chemistry was put into place attempting to modernise and uh, aid his father's business, and it didn't go very well at all. Despite Harbour doing what he could to, you know, with his doctor to help his old man, you know, investigating the chemical properties of the dyes that he sold, convincing him to switch to synthetic dyes rather than organic ones, the two blokes just did not get on well, I mean, either professionally or personally. And Harbour spent as much time as he could actually away from his dad on the road, interfacing with other chemical companies so that he could gain more experience and knowledge in the field of chemistry and also just not be around his dad. Uh, But honestly, look, Harbour did not seem to have much of a flair for business at all. And this only led to further tension and conflict with his old man. In 1892, therefore, he gave up. He moved away uh, from, from the world of commerce and instead returned to school, this time at the Polytechnic College in Zurich, Switzerland, which is today's uh, ETH Zurich, uh, where very neatly both Einstein and von Braun also once studied. Anyway, academic life really seemed to suit Harbour much more than, than, than the world of business. And so from 1892 onwards, Harbour never seriously returned to his father's business or anything like it. He remained an, an academic for the rest of his life. He settled down at the University of Karlsruhe, and there he worked as an assistant to various other chemists, Ludwig Knorr, who developed the world's first synthetic drug, or uh, Hans Bunter, who discovered 
a bunch of sulfur compounds. Really exciting, Hans. Great job. But no, look, we've got to give Hans Bunter some, some, some credit here because he was responsible for guiding Harbour's research into things like the chemistry of hydrocarbons, into things like electrochemistry. And these would be very important for Harbour's career later on down the track. And also while working for Bunter, Harbour was able to travel pretty extensively. He went around to various universities throughout the German-speaking world, continued to learn more in various areas of chemistry, uh, including the latest developments in the chemistry of dyes and textiles. He didn't forget his roots. But look, overall, his career is de- it's developing reasonably well. It's a little unremarkable at this stage. We're still a while away from having this massive breakthrough that's going to change the course of human history. But, you know, he's, he's going around, he's holding classes and lectures, he's writing books, collaborating with other chemists in working on all sorts of stuff, from electrochemistry to chemical thermodynamics. And uh, ultimately, in 1906, he was made a professor of physical chemistry at the University of Karlsruhe. But all of this really is just window dressing. It is time to talk about Harbour's most important and significant contribution, not just to chemistry, not just to science, but to life on Earth as we know it today. Harbour remained at the University of Karlsruhe for almost 20 years, from 1894 until 1911, and it was during this period that he developed the Harbour process, known today as the Harbour-Bosch process. We'll come to Bosch and his partner a little bit later on. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that the Harbour-Bosch process is one of the most important and significant scientific breakthroughs in human history, and hardly anyone has heard of it. It doesn't get a lot of press. But let me tell you this, life would be very different without it and not necessarily in a good way. Today, without the Harbour-Bosch process, feeding 8 billion humans would be a nigh-impossible challenge. And one of the reasons that we're able to sustain such a high population and and avoid widespread starvation and famine is because of Harbour's work. But let's leave Fritz Haber just for the moment, working away at the University of Karlsruhe as he is, on his way to changing the course of history forever. And let's go back in time to talk about how we have managed to find ways to feed ourselves for thousands and thousands of years and what problems emerged with those ways that meant that the Haber-Bosch process was the incredible world-changing breakthrough that it ended up being. Before the development of agriculture, so we're going back tens of thousands of years here, before the development of agriculture, humans were hunter-gatherers. We would cut about, kill animals for food, or gather up you know, wild fruits and vegetables to eat them. And that was enough to sustain a smallish human population for a very, very long time, as I say, tens of thousands of years. But eventually, agriculture would develop. We realised that it was easier to keep animals inside fences so we didn't have to chase them. We realised that it was easy to plant the the fruits and vegetables that we wanted to eat so we didn't have to wander about looking for them. This was a huge milestone in human history because for the first time, we were now able to devote huge amounts of time to things that weren't just the basic necessities for survival. And this, as we'll talk about in just a second, is basically what underpins all of modern human civilization. Anyway, as hunter-gatherers, we didn't really ever have more food than we needed, right? We would hunt or gather enough to feed ourselves and those in our little communities, and, and broadly speaking, that was that. Get up tomorrow, do it all again. So 
Roughly, each person would hunt or gather enough food for themselves and their dependents. There was never all that much extra because you didn't need much extra. You would just get up the next morning and hunt and gather more food, and that was that. But with, uh, with the advent of farming, humans were now able to produce reliably a lot more food than they themselves could eat, even with their dependents. And in fact, I mean, because of farming, just a few people working on a farm could feed an entire community. There was no longer a one-to-one ratio of people working to feed themselves. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I'll try to put it more simply. Imagine it like this. Let's say you've got a community of 100 people, and those 100 people, hunter-gatherers, they go out and they hunt and they gather 100 people's worth of food. Now, obviously, this is overlooking children and the elderly who can't hunt or gather for themselves, sure, whatever. But you understand what the example is telling us. The ratio of food hunted or gathered to food eaten was roughly one-to-one. Now, let's imagine that same community, right? But now with farming instead of hunting and gathering. Let's say that only, I don't know, 25 people are needed to work on a farm that can produce 100 people's worth of food. Farming is much more efficient than hunting and gathering. It yields a lot more food for a lot less work. And now, in this example, we've got 75 people who no longer have to occupy their day-to-day life. They They don't have to work to feed themselves, as the work of those 25 farmers is enough to produce food for all 100 people. So... What do those 75 people do? What do they do with their full bellies in their free time? The answer is the foundational basis of modern human civilization. They did whatever they bloody wanted to, mate. They made things. They built things. They explored or experimented. They learned and discovered. And they developed specialized knowledge and skills that they never could have if they'd had to spend most of their time looking for food. Technological development exploded as people figured out new or better ways to do things, to to build houses and buildings, to make clothing and weapons and tools, to attain and record increasingly sophisticated knowledge. The basis of modern human civilization is the fact that people were no longer required to devote the majority of their their waking hours searching for food, they could instead devote that time to learning and asking questions and making discoveries and, and adding to the total sum of human knowledge and propelling civilization further and further forward into the future, which is where we end up today. I wouldn't be able to do this podcast if I had to go and hunt a saber-toothed tiger every morning just so I could have my breakfast. Now, I'm making it sound like this is a wonderful thing. I'm certainly willing to accept the argument that it isn't. It's not all upside. The development of agriculture quickly led to class divisions. It led to the division of people between the haves and the have-nots, and specifically who had food and who did not have food. Um, And those who controlled the food supply had an enormous amount of influence and sway over those who didn't, uh, leading to power systems and governments and and also the prosperity that one community might enjoy with with rich harvests from their farms could very well make them a target for another community who might have spent less time farming and more time getting very good at killing people. And, you know, they could come along and take the food by force. We tend to look at the march of civilization as a universally good thing, but I mean, Who's to say that it is? Who's to say that we are necessarily better off now that we're not hunter-gatherers? I mean, it worked for thousands of years for our ancestors, and 
while they didn't have, I don't know, electric toothbrushes and air conditioning or Tin Pot History podcasts, who's to say they weren't just as happy as we are or potentially even happier? They didn't have to bloody pay a mortgage. It's an interesting debate because while agriculture is a cornerstone of human civilization, it has also led to social inequality, uh, oppressive power systems, widespread military conflict, and all sorts of other awful things that just never would have been possible in, in a hunter-gatherer system. But then again, we get to live long and mostly comfortable lives with stable food supplies and good nutrition and don't run the risk of, you know, getting trampled by a woolly mammoth just in order to get some tucker in our bellies. So I suppose there's, there's, there's good and bad to both sides. Anyway, Sorry, we're, we're way off base here. What's going on? Back, back to farming, specifically the farming of plants and crops. As we domesticated plants to feed ourselves, we learnt more and more about how best to make these plants grow. Ancient crops were, can I tell you, absolutely pathetic. Compared to the rich and bounteous yields that we get from modern agriculture, scraping food out of the earth years ago, very, very difficult thing to do. Today, it's much easier because... Much like you can breed animals for certain purposes, you can also breed plants. And that is what we've done over the years. We have learnt how to get the maximum yield out of the plants that we grow for food to the point that, for instance, right, um, bananas, you might know this, despite looking kind of like dicks, are completely infertile. Those, those tiny little black spots that you see inside them sometimes, those are all that's left of their seeds after we have bred banana plants to have as much flesh as possible to the point that the seeds have almost been eradicated. The only way, you can't grow banana plants from seeds. The only way you can grow them is from cuttings, which means that banana plants around the world lack genetic diversity and therefore aren't as disease resistant as they could be. We're going off on another tangent. I mean, sorry, plants, farming, Harbour Bosch process, we are, we are getting there. Um, as we learnt more and more about how to maximise our yields from plants, how to make sure that they grow and as strong, as, as big and as, as bountiful as possible, as we learn all of these things, right, humans learnt that there was stuff that you could do, and in some, some cases stuff you had to do, in order to get crops to grow properly. Farmers figured out that crops grew bigger and better and stronger if certain things were added to the soil in which they were planted. And this brings us, of course, to fertiliser. For thousands of years, farmers used all sorts of different stuff. You could spread manure or bone meal throughout a field, for instance. You could rotate your crops with things like legumes, beans and lentils and that sort of stuff. And this would refresh and enrich the soil. But refresh and enrich it, enrich it with what exactly? Why does adding manure or bone meal to soil help plants grow in it? Well, in short, and without going into too much depth here, all these things add nutrients to the soil, which plants then feed off as they grow, which helps them become bigger and stronger, as I say. And again, without going into too much detail here, the most important nutrient in the soil for growing a plant is nitrogen, which things like legumes, manure, and bone meal add to soil. So, I mean, there's other stuff as well. There's like phosphorus and improving soil texture and all sorts of other things as well. But we're not getting into that here. Nitrogen is the really important thing to focus on. And that is what will eventually, I promise, bring us back to Fritz Harbour and the Harbour-Bosch process. So, plants need fertilizer in order to grow properly. No worries. Everyone knows that. For thousands of years, farmers fertilized their crops with whatever they could. But naturally, they were always searching for newer and better ways to fertilise them. With an ever-growing population and more and more mouths to feed, a lot of importance was put on efficiency 
in agriculture, yielding as much food as possible from your crops. And so crop fertilization became eventually an industry, particularly in the last couple of centuries. More and more effort was put into reliably sourcing fertilizer for farming around the world. This resulted in things like horse manure being gathered from city streets, animal bones that were, were, were ground up into meal to spread across fields, chemists figuring out how to make fertilizer from saltpeter, and, and guano, birchit, becoming a very, very profitable trade good. People would go and scrape it off the sides of rocks and put it in sacks and sell it to farmers for enormous amounts of money because that was what was needed for farmers to continue to grow their crops at a level that was going to sustain the, the growing population of the planet. But here's the thing. All of this was highly unsustainable as the supply of fertilizers like manure and bones and guano and saltpeter was quickly being outstripped by the rising demand of a growing population, particularly in Europe. And in, in fact, by the time we get to the late 19th century and by the time we get to Fritz Haber, leading scientists of the day are predicting that the world's stocks of natural fertilizers would be exhausted before too much longer. And this would lead to a massive food security crisis and ultimately widespread famine and starvation as farms would not be able to produce enough food to feed everyone without fertilizer. The world needed nitrogen, and it needed lots of it. And here's the most frustrating thing about the whole situation. There is so much nitrogen on this planet, or more specifically, just above it. We all know, right, that we need oxygen to breathe, right? Yep, we need, we need oxygen. We need to breathe it in to survive. We all know that. We need oxygen. Plants need nitrogen. And when you take in a big breath of air, like you just did now that you heard me talking about it, gotcha, the air that you breathe is 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen. And we're the ones with lungs, not plants. But all this nitrogen in the air isn't doing plants any good. Scientists needed to figure out a way to extract the nitrogen from the air around us and turn it into a usable plant fertilizer. But this felt impossible because nitrogen as a gas is extremely unreactive. It's held together by immensely strong triple covalent bonds. Here's that high school science coming back to haunt you. You thought you'd left it behind, but Mr. Roberts, he's coming for you. So if, if the nitrogen in the air is inaccessible, if it's locked away behind its triple covalent bonds, we can't get it, we can't access it and feed it to plants, where else can we find? Where, what other potential sources of nitrogen are there that are available to us? Well, there are nitrates. There are things like ammonia, right? That's the most notable nitrate, probably. It's a somewhat unremarkable compound of nitrogen and hydrogen. Very, very common. It's a metabolic waste product for many creatures. You can find it in human piss. So great, let's just use that. Fantastic. Problem solved. Why didn't we think of this sooner? Well, the answer is we did. We have been using nitrates like ammonia for millennia. And that's the problem. They're just aren't enough of them. There's just not enough ammonia going around. That's the whole issue. All right, so you're thinking, okay, well, if we're running out of it, can we synthesize it? Is there a way for us to make ammonia, right? And this is what scientists were trying. They tried and tried. All these scientists hoping for a breakthrough that would forestall the coming crisis by trying to find a way to synthesize something like ammonia, a nitrate that could be used as a fertilizer. And none of these scientists succeeded. 
Well, I mean, that's not quite fair. Some of them, some of them did succeed in, synth- in synthesizing some nitrogen-based substances. Some even managed to do it with atmospheric nitrogen, which is quite an achievement. This is known as nitrogen fixation. But uh, the problem is no one could do it in a way that was even remotely cost-effective or sustainable. For instance, in 1902, a pair of American electrochemists, Bradley and Lovejoy, they found a way to produce nitric acid from atmospheric nitrogen, but they went out of business very quickly indeed because of the cost of the electricity that they needed to run their machines. It took a colossal amount of energy to tear nitrogen from the air, and it just wasn't a remotely, as I say, cost-effective or sustainable way to do it. Similarly, in 1905, Norwegian physicist Christian Berkeland found a way to synthesize nitrogen oxide from atmospheric nitrogen and was given an entire power plant in order to power his efforts, but he was never able to develop yields that were efficient enough to make this process worthwhile. Atmospheric nitrogen is just too stable. It is too difficult to mess with. You can't efficiently rip it out of the air and turn it into usable fertilizer. Or can you? Fritz Haber, the man, the myth, the legend, he became interested in this problem alongside so many other scientists of his day. And all the way back in 1905, one of his books actually talked about nitrogen fixation. He noted that with the use of of a chemical catalyst at 1,000 degrees Celsius, you could indeed produce small amounts of ammonia from nitrogen gas. But again, here's the problem. 1,000 degrees, not the sort of environment that you can efficiently create or work in. So Harbour didn't really pursue these results any further as a result. Until 1907, when a rivalry between him and another chemist, Walter Nernst, spurred Harbour on to reopen his research into nitrogen fixation. And it's a very bloody good thing he did too. Harbour was able to combine his, and Nernst's in fairness, research with his knowledge of high-pressure chemistry to develop an all-new way to synthesise ammonia. With some help from a British chemist named Robert Le Rossignol when it came to designing and making equipment, Harbour realised that the key to synthesising ammonia from atmospheric nitrogen was doing so in an environment of immensely high air pressure, as well as high temperature. And I'm not going to go into all the crunchy details here, as it does seem pretty complicated, and I wasn't really able to follow follow along fully, but here's the long and short of it. You put nitrogen gas into a machine that heats it up to around five or 600 degrees, and you expose it to chemical catalysts to speed up a chemical reaction. And you do all this. Here's, here's the really important part. Here's the critical part. You do all this in a highly pressurized environment. You increase the pressure within this machine to around 20 megapascals. And how much pressure is that, you may ask? Well, at sea level, the atmosphere is typically just a little bit over 100,000 pascals. So 20 megapascals is 200 times that. This is happening at extremely high pressure. But even so, even with this enormously high pressure, even with this enormously high temperature, Only about 5% of the inserted hydrogen and nitrogen gas will experience a chemical reaction. And this will create ammonia, which you then withdraw from the machine. But the remaining gas that didn't undergo a reaction, remember, this gas is 
very, very non-reactive. So even getting 5% of it to react to something. The remainder of the gas, you then just feed right back into the machine and you repeat the whole process and you do this again and again and again, ripping 5% of, 5% of the nitrogen out of the air each time until eventually around 90% of the nitrogen in that gas will be fixed as ammonia. So talk about efficiency. This is a process that takes 97% of the nitrogen out of the air. Harbour wasn't the first to fix atmospheric nitrogen, not, not by a long shot, but he was the first to demonstrate that it could be done in a way that was extremely efficient and also might just end up being very cost-effective. If this was the real McCoy, Harbour had just found a way to solve the impending food crisis by producing ammonia on a large scale and thereby giving the world a new and sustainable source of fertiliser. After all, it's just taking nitrogen out of the air itself. This is not a scarce deposit of nitrogen that would quickly be exhausted. So, if this new process, the process by which ammonia could be fixed from atmospheric nitrogen, the harbour process, if it could be scaled to an industrial level, the consequences would be world-changing because we would never, ever run out of fertiliser. And this is where Bosch comes in. Carl Bosch, the, the bloke for whom the other half of the Harbour Bosch process is named, uh, he was a scientist in the employ of BASF, Badische Anlin und Soderfabrik, uh, which even today is the largest chemical producer on earth. And uh, when Harbour revealed his new process to the world, BASF took a very keen interest in it and purchased the process from Harbour and tasked Bosch to work with him in attempting to scale the process to an industrial level. Now, this was not an easy thing to do. Even the construction of equipment that could handle both enormously high temperatures and enormously high pressure was a huge undertaking because, again, this equipment had to be built on an industrial scale. Together, however, Harbour and Bosch were able to overcome all sorts of obstacles figuring out ways to make the chemical catalysts cheaper and more practical, working out what kind of gas was best to feed into the machine, finding out the best method of processing the ammonia once it had been extracted, on top of, you know, scaling up this entire process so it was going to be viable on an industrial scale. And this is where Bosch's contributions really come to the fore. His, his involvement in this endeavour were principally in scaling it. Harbour had the process figured out, but it was Bosch who lent his expertise in expanding this process, as I say, to an industrial level. And this was what happened. In 1913, Harbour and Bosch demonstrated an ability to mass produce ammonia. In 1914, BASF was making 20 tonnes of ammonia every day. And by way of comparison, when he first started with the, with the Harbour process, Harbour could make about 125 millilitres per hour. And yes, I realise that the comparison isn't that useful as one unit measures weight and the other measures volume, not to mention different units of time. But whatever, you get my point. 125 mil an hour to 20 tonnes a day is an absolutely colossal increase. Unless you're talking about something like, I don't know, a neutron star, in which case it's a colossal decrease, but that's whatever. You get my point. This 
was world-changing. Let's talk about what it meant in real terms. When the Harbour-Bosch process was being worked on in the early 20th century, the population of planet Earth was a little over one and a half billion people. And today, we've just hit eight billion. In a little over a hundred years, the human population has quintupled. And you might ask why? Well, more than anything else, believe it or not, it is because of the Harbour-Bosch process and its impact on human civilization. Crop fertilizer was just not scarce anymore. It was readily accessible. It was cheap. It was plentiful. Farmers around the world could grow more food than ever before. And more food means more people living for more time and having more kids because they know that they can afford to feed them as well. And so the human population exploded as food security increased all around the world. To put things in perspective, check this out. If we were still growing crops at the same rate that we did in 1900, in the, with, with the same efficiency, with the same yields, we would need about four times as much of the Earth's surface given over to agriculture. That is almost half of the Earth's land area, not including Antarctica because good luck growing anything at all there. Almost half the land on Earth would have to be given over to, over to farms just to feed the human population of today. If you think deforestation and habitat destruction is a problem, I mean, and, and, it, and it is, just imagine how much worse it would be if we needed half of the Earth's land area just to feed ourselves rather than the 15% or so that we use today. Hundreds of millions of tonnes of ammonia are still produced even today by the Harbour-Bosch process and a vast proportion of the Earth's population is fed by crops that simply wouldn't exist without it. There are other factors too, of course, I'm not trying to overlook them. There's plant breeding, there's pesticides, all sorts of other things that have increased agricultural productivity and yield. But the Harbour-Bosch process was a foundational change to humanity. It forestalled an impending food security crisis in providing the world with an essentially limitless supply of fertiliser. And so... It is difficult to overstate just how important this has been to human civilization in the last century or so. The world has changed so much in the last hundred years, and a huge part of that change has been the population explosion that sees the world filled with, as I said before, eight billion people. Now, I'm not arguing that this change has been universally positive. I mean, I will make the argument that it's good that people don't starve, but it's less certain that a lot of the other knock-on effects of the Harbour-Bosch process have, have all been good. For one, the abundance of ammonia and the nitrogen that it unlocks means that there's now too much nitrogen where it shouldn't be in waterways and water systems as excess runoff from farms where it wasn't all absorbed by plants. Um, the Harbour-Bosch process is also pretty energy demanding, Despite being relatively efficient for what it does, it's still estimated that it takes up about 1% to 2% of the world's entire energy supply. That is a pretty significant proportion of the world's energy output that just goes into making ammonia. Um, but, you know, again, this is done to prevent widespread famine, so I suppose it's probably worth it. Um, but as, as you might know, um, the Harbour-Bosch process in, in making ammonia, ammonia isn't just used for fertilizer, it is also a key ingredient in many explosives. 
So now, all of a sudden, if you're in the business of making things that can kill lots of people very quickly, Harbour's breakthrough is going to make your work easier than ever before. So on the one hand, we've got secure food, no famine. On the other, we've got more and deadlier explosives than ever before, so not ideal. But more broadly, when we're talking about problems, if you zoom out and look at some of the wider issues brought about by the Harbour-Bosch process, it really starts to get very tricky indeed. Certainly, it's a good thing that there isn't widespread famine and starvation throughout the world. Certainly, it's a good thing that, broadly speaking, we have enough food to go around these days in most parts of the world. But has the population boom that has come with this massive increase in in the world's food supply, has this population boom been a good thing? It is difficult to argue that an overpopulated Earth is a positive result, but the two go hand in hand. Increased food security leads to an increase in global population, and you can't have one without the other. But then if you start talking about how there are too many people on Earth and how the Harbour-Bosch process went too far in fixing food security, and you will start sounding like a supervillain. But the point remains, as rosy as it sounds to have agricultural productivity skyrocket to make sure people get fed, it's not all upside and i yeah i realize i'm starting to sound like someone who is you know gonna hold the world ransom for a bajillion dollars there i don't really know how to phrase that without sounding like a maniac anyway at the end of the day fritz harbour saw off what would have become a global calamity if a reliable source of fertilizer hadn't been found as natural fertilizer stocks depleted there could have been a global food shortage that would have had absolutely disastrous consequences. So overpopulation or a global famine? I know which one I'm picking, and it is not the one that makes me sound like I record this from a secret volcano lair. Anyway, interestingly enough, uh, as we wrap up the story of Fritz Haber, it's not just the Haber-Bosch process that had some sort of unfortunate elements to it. It's also Haber's career towards the end of it, as I mentioned. In 1911, in the midst of this whole business with the Harbour-Bosch process, he moved from the University of Karlsruhe to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry and Electrochemistry in Berlin, quite the mouthful. Today, it's known (laughs) instead as the Fritz Harbour Institute of the Max Planck Society. So they just really have a thing for very strange names. Um, And Harbour also won the Nobel Prize for chemistry for his work on the Harbour-Bosch process. Bosch would also win a Nobel Prize in his own right in 1931. Both of them recognised for the enormity of their contributions to human civilization in giving us a readily accessible source of ammonia to fertilise our crops and feed the world and also blow things up. But after the successful unveiling of the Harbour-Bosch process in 1913, the very next huge global event on the agenda was, of course the First World War. And Harbour did not emerge from the war with a glowing and uh, impeccable reputation, let me tell you this. Harbour, like many at the time, was very enthusiastic about the, uh, about the war. He was a proud German, and he was very keen for Germany to get stuck in and teach those damn British and French a sharp lesson with all the fury of the Teutons. He threw himself into supporting the German war effort, and I will I'll pause very quickly here. I think it's worth noting that, that while war is obviously never all that great, 
The Germans in the First World War were very, very different to the Germans in the Second World War. And we have a bad habit of conflating the two, particularly in the English-speaking world, so heavily dominated by, by the British, by the Americans. Um, the Second World War's Nazi Germany was, of course, absolutely abhorrent, a despicable regime responsible for some of the worst crimes against humanity in history. But the, the First World War's imperial Germany was, in reality, no worse than Britain or France or the US or, or anyone else who took part in the war, which isn't to say that they were virtuous and perfect. No one was. But they're not the clear-cut bad guys like the Nazis so very obviously were. So while you might have legitimate objections to Harbour being so gung-ho about the war, be sure not to tar him with the same brush that you would an actual literal Nazi just because he was a warlike German from the early 20th century. And that goes broadly speaking for the Germans that fought in the First World War and the Second World War. It's not difficult to characterise the Germans who fought in the Second World, Second World War as the bad guys, but doing so to the Germans who fought in the First World War, it's a, it's a bit of a one-sided view to take of things and really kind of falls into line with, you know, the, the whole idea that the winners write the history books. I, I would say that all of the all of the belligerents within the First World War had equally legitimate reasons to be fighting it. I'm not saying those those reasons were enormously legitimate, but they certainly were equally legitimate. And so, don't fall into the, into the trap of of tarring the First World War Germans with the same brush as the Second World War Germans. Anyway, anyway, Harbour gets stuck in. He lends his talents to the German war effort uh, and undoes much of his incredible legacy as the saviour of billions by heading up a team of scientists responsible for chemical warfare. And you may have heard of the horrors of the gases used in the trenches during the First World War, and I'm sorry to say that Harbour was the mastermind behind much of the Germans' chemical warfare. He helped to develop things like the deadly heavier-than-air chlorine gas, and he personally oversaw its deployment in places like Ypres in Belgium in mid-1915, where it killed over 67,000 people. And apparently, Harbour's wife Clara, who he had married in 1901, was so distressed by what her husband had done that she shot herself. So rather than just be known as the man who helped to feed billions... Harbour also picked up the epithet, the father of chemical warfare. So significant were his contributions to this field. A very unfortunate aspect to add to his legacy. But worst of all, Harbour stood by the contributions that he made to the German war effort, even after they lost the war. As a proud German nationalist, he was once quoted as saying, During peacetime, a scientist belongs to the world, but during wartime, he belongs to his country. Harbour argued against chemical warfare being inhumane by saying that death was death, no matter how it occurred. He said, <clears throat> The disapproval that the knight had for the man with the firearm is repeated in the soldier who shoots with steel bullets towards the man who confronts him with chemical weapons. In doing and saying these things, Harbour very significantly tarnished his reputation. And I have to say, for all of his pride in supporting Germany after the war, the nation did not treat him kindly. Harbour continued to work on weaponised gases after the First World War until, of course, the rise of the Nazis made him rethink his firm allegiance to Germany. Harbour had 
converted to Lutheranism earlier in his career in what was it's what it's broadly thought to have been a purely pragmatic move designed to widen his professional prospects, but the conversion didn't matter to the Nazis. As they began to zero in on Jews within Germany in the 1930s, Harbour realised that he and his loved ones would be in danger. Conversion or no, Harbour was still considered Jewish by the Nazis. And so, in 1933, he resigned his professorship and, fearing for his safety, he moved with his family to Britain. Although, by now, more than a few things were going wrong for him. For one, he was in very poor health. Well into his 60s, he had angina and he became became progressively more unwell from 1933 onwards. And even after making it out of Germany, he found that he had fewer friends that he would like within the scientific community. And, I mean, you think about it, this is unsurprising. Not only was he enthusiastically warlike, which is an attribute that most scientists don't hold in high regard, he also had helped to kill countless thousands of British soldiers with his chlorine gas, and now he's moving to Britain. Famous scientists like Ernest Rutherford refused to associate with him. Rutherford, in particular, refused to even shake his hand. So Harbour was a bit of a pariah while in Britain. But in any case, this this situation didn't last because in 1934, Harbour's health finally gave up on him and he died on the 29th of January, 1934, at the age of 65. And so ended the life of one of the most important scientists of the 20th century, and perhaps beyond, someone who brought about a profound shift in human civilization, someone whose work forever changed the course of history, someone whom we don't often hear about when considering the magnitude of his contributions to the modern world. It is difficult to laud Harbour as one of humanity's greatest heroes, considering how enthusiastic he was to snuff out life as well as save it, And for all the lives that he saved, for all the lives he eventually created by giving us a stable and steady food supply that can support billions upon billions, his warlike eagerness to kill his fellow human overshadows much of his positive legacy. To make things even worse, the Nazis built upon the work that he had done with poisonous gases to develop Zyklon B, the gas used to murder countless numbers of Harbour's fellow Jews in Nazi extermination camps. So, like so many other famous historical figures, we are forced then to label Harbour's legacy as mixed. A tragedy, considering the enormity of his contribution to human civilization with the Harbour-Bosch process. But it looks like he just couldn't help himself. And after finding a new and efficient way to feed people and keep them alive, a way that, as I say, would change the face of human civilization and enable some of the most profound shifts in society to take place across the 20th century and into the 21st. Harbour then sabotaged his own legacy by finding new and efficient ways to kill people as well. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Fritz Haber. And even with his mixed legacy, I still think it's important that more people learn about this bloke and the enormity of his contributions to human civilization. So, again, even though he kind of stuffed it all up there with his reputation at the end, I still think this is a bloke that we should talk about more than we do. Anyway, 
I want to close out the show with the, with the normal boring housekeeping stuff. But before you switch away, before you turn it off, these uh, we've got some important stuff to get across today. So uh, so do have a listen. Half House History has moved. Uh, the the show is now hosted with a new platform called Megaphone. I'd like to thank the Megaphone team for for bringing us on board. It's been a, a relatively easy process moving the show over to Megaphone. And the reason I've done this is to fix, hopefully, once and for all, some of the problems that people were having with accessing the show over the last couple of weeks. We have been having problems. Uh, there have been issues with, with the, the RSS feed and all sorts of other stuff we don't need to go into here. Moving over to Megaphone should have fixed it. If it hasn't, let me know. This is really important. If you're having any difficulty whatsoever accessing the show, please let me know because it means that some aspect of the transition over to Megaphone hasn't gone as smoothly as I thought, and I really do need your help in squashing the final bugs. But I'm confident that moving over to Megaphone will ultimately solve all the problems we were having with uh, people accessing the show, but I still want to hear from you. If you've got any feedback, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral, if you've got anything you want to let me know about uh, about your experience of the transition, even if that experience is I didn't notice, which is a very good data point because it means that everything went smoothly for you, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Halfhousehistory.net, use the contact form to get in touch with any feedback. And you can also use it to send through topic suggestions or any ideas you might have for, uh, for future episodes, just like Eric Whedon did, just like Lydia did. Uh, it's great to hear from people. I do read every single email I get, and uh, I would greatly appreciate people getting in touch to let me know their thoughts on the, on the transition over to Megaphone. Got a couple of other things cooking up with, uh, with the transition over to Megaphone, and I'm excited to, uh, to get stuck into them in the coming weeks. Uh, still, still figuring out a few bits and pieces, but uh, there are some changes coming to Half House History that uh, I, hope, uh, I hope are really going to level the show up in, uh, in ways that, uh, you know, you might enjoy. So look forward to that. Anyway, uh, apart from that, all the other boring housekeeping stuff, Patreon, merch, you've heard it all before, patreon.com slash history. sign up today, uh, get access to all sorts of exclusive secret behind the scenes stuff. Uh, there's merch available, uh, still selling those um, famous figures from history, name, portrait things, if you want to get across them. Uh, but that's it. That's about it. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of the Half Our Sister community. Thanks for letting me know what you think of this uh, this new hosting platform. Um, and uh, as ever, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Uh, closing out the show this week with a question posed on Reddit. We've been talking about crops. We've been talking about fertilizing. We've been talking about ways to make sure that, uh, you know, things grow up big, strong and healthy. And so this question comes to us from Redditor Vul Shocker, who asks, why don't my co-workers grow when I crop dust them. <laughs>